one of the uh, one of the things that I, I enjoy most about working uh, at the university and interacting with students is that they're at such a pivotal point in their life. They're at that place in their life where they're really trying to determine and direct exactly what uh, they're going to be, who they're going to be. They're trying to discover who they are. Um, and as I interact with them and as I um, uh, hear from them and listen from them, it's a question that uh, I... I I understand not only resonates with them and is an important part of where they're at, but it's a question that we all uh, really return to from time to time, and that is, who am I? Who am I? What, what, is, what is my nature? What is my importance? What is my place in this world? Um, it happens at times of loss. It happens at times of transition. Uh, you know, you're starting a new job or you're starting a, a, a new direction or purpose. It happens at the time of, of uh, uh, you know, new little ones coming along. You know, uh, you have a, a child that's born, you look, you look at the child and you're like, okay, this is my child, but who am I? And uh, how does that uh, affect my interaction with them and, and my engagement with them? Sometimes the question just appears as you're, you're, you're just walking through life. And you look at the world around you, and you look at the wonders of the world around you, and the circumstances that you find yourself in, and, and you wonder, God, who am I? Who did you make me to be? What, what is my purpose here in your world, in your creation? And that's uh, the question that the psalmist is asking in the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 8. You turn with me there in your Bible. So we're going to look at this psalm that uh, we sang uh, earlier. Uh, our first song does... Uh, uh, straight out of the, the first sentence and the last sentence of this particular psalm. But it is a psalm that, uh, as it expresses and acknowledges God's majesty and his greatness and his power, it asks the question, who am I? Who are we? How do we fit into God's plan? And it's my hope this morning that as we look at this passage, as we look at what is revealed here uh, in this praise, in this hymn to God, that we will, in fact, discover who we are and who God has called us to be and what he's called us to do and, and how to engage a world that so desperately needs to know of his saving power and his grace. And so um, follow along with me as, as I read here Psalm 8. The psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As you hear the psalm, as you reflect upon the, the, the words communicating the, the, the power and the glory, the awesomeness of our God, you, you see that sentence right there in the middle. What is man? 
you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. What, what is humanity? Why do you even consider us? Why do we matter? Are we significant? At the heart of that question is the, the, the reflection, who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? I look at all the things around me and I ask that question. And the answer to that question first and foremost resides in who God is. Who is the one who made us? Who is the one who shaped us? Who is the one that we are modeled after? This past week, we had the, the joy of celebrating my, my middle child's 21st birthday. Big milestone birthday and you know, as he's kind of reflected on who he is and what's going on in his life, I'm reflecting on who I am and what's going on in my life as well. You know, where do I fit into all this? And as is my custom, uh, uh, I posted on Facebook. That's that's kind of the birthday card of the modern era, I guess. You post on Facebook, you know, your reflections upon who they are and how important they are to you and that sort of thing. And and uh, as usual, people responded with happy birthday and wishing Will well and you got to be careful how you say that sentence, Will Well. Um, <laughs> um, wishing him well and so forth. And, and sure enough, there were a couple posts there that were, he looks just like you. Um, and I, I can't deny it, and unfortunately for him, he can't deny it. You know, um, there is that similarity, there is that reflection. And, and you know, when, when I think of my own life, I think of my children, I think of my parents. There is what? There is that connection between you and the ones who made you, okay? You know, I think as teenagers, we all utter the words, well, I'm never going to be like you, or I'm going to be a different parent than you were, and so forth. And then one day you're sitting there, and you're parenting your child, and, and your parents come out of your mouth. <laughs> and you're like, I, I'm just like you. We are like the person, the one who, the ones who made us. Well, as human beings, we are like the creator who created us. There is a connection. There is a relationship. There is a significance about that reality. And in order for us to understand who we are, to understand who we're supposed to be and, and where we're headed and, and what this all means, we have to understand, first of all, who he is. And the psalmist begins and ends with that acknowledgement. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God is awesome. Our God is magnificent. Our God is significant. To, to look at his creation is to understand something of who he is. Now that phrase, O oh Lord, our Lord, that's it, 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 there in the English, it, it's, it doesn't clearly express exactly what's going on with that phrase. Because in the Hebrew, those are two different words. The two lords there at the beginning are, are two different words in the Hebrew. Okay? And, and they, they communicate, they relate two very different things about God. Two very important things about God. The first Lord that you see there, the one that's all caps, is the divine name Yahweh. Okay? It's the name that he gave to Israel to, to, to know how to relate to him, to know how to call on him. To know someone's name is to have a relationship with them. When you meet somebody, when you introduce yourself to somebody, you, you, you typically share your name with them. My name's 
Tim or, or whatever your name happens to be. You share that with them. Why? Because it's an invitation to relationship, to connection. For them to know your name is to, is to know that they can, they can call out on you, that they, they can reach out to you, that they can connect with you in some way. And so when God gave his name to Israel, and he said, I am, which is uh, an aspect, a, a part of the name Yahweh. When God did that, he was inviting Israel. He was inviting humanity to relate to him, to have a connection with him, to, that he would not just be a God who's off and distant and unknowable and unrelatable and, and, and all those things. He would be a God that we can call on. You know, to, to have God's name is to, is to have uh, a... a, a relationship with him, a connection with him. And so that's where it starts. Oh, Yahweh. It's a calling out to him. It's a reaching out to him. But then the second Lord here is, is the word Adonai. And, and it's, not, it's not a name as much as it is a description. Okay? It, it's the word that means Lord or Master or King or or authority figure. Oh, Yahweh, our master. And so it does what? It gives him, it gives us his identity. It gives us his role in our relationship. And again, to know someone's job or to know their what they do for a living is a big part of how we get to know somebody, isn't it? I mean, right after you usually give somebody your name, you ask, well, what do you do for a living? You know, or what have you done for a living, that sort of thing. Why? Because that kind of connects you in a, in a whole different way. In this case, God is saying, he's relating to us through the psalm, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the authority here. You want to know where your life is headed and, and, and what you need to know about how to live it? Come to me, he's saying. He's communicating, I'm the one who directs your path. I'm the one who leads you through this life. I'm the one who gives you your identity, who has plotted out the path of your life. And so the psalmist starts and, and ends with that disclosure, with that recognition, our connection to God and his position in our life helps us to understand and identify and define our relationship to him and to the world, and in so doing helps us identify who we are. The passage goes on to, to tell us more about him. It, it tells us that, that he's a majestic one. How majestic or how excellent, how awesome, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. And, and that disclosure itself is a significant expression of, of understanding our God, especially when you take it in the context of the original uh, writing the, the original historical setting. In the days when this psalm was written, there was a belief, there was perception around people that um, gods were limited to a specific area, a specific region. That there was the God of Israel. There was the God of Moab. There was the God of Eden. There was the God of Babylonia. There was the gods of Egypt and so forth. And these were all different gods. This was their perspective. And their, their understanding, their, their concept of, of life and of how you lived it was that hopefully your God was more powerful than the gods of the nations next to you so that you would be victorious in warfare or you'd be victorious in life and those sorts of things. But the biblical writer here throws aside those concepts, throws aside 
those ideas. And he says what instead? He says, You're, how glorious, how marvelous, how excellent is your name in all the earth. All the earth is yours. Not just Israel. Not just this, this little patch of land here in, 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 in next to the Mediterranean and in between Egypt and Babylonia. Not, not just this strip of land here. All the earth is yours. You are the one who is in control of all things. Now, today we don't have the concept of God that, that separates uh, gods into, into different nations and so forth. The, the different nations have different gods necessarily. But we do have this concept of God that sometimes uh, limits him to certain aspects of our life. We compartmentalize certain parts of our life and we say, that belongs to God, but this belongs to me. That, that this is mine and, and that's his. And so sometimes we, we what? We act differently when we're in church than we do in our professions or in our life or in our family. Or, or, or we, we, we think, you know, certain places have certain rules that other places don't have or certain parts of our life have certain rules that other parts of our life don't have. When in fact, God is what? God's the Lord of all the earth. And He's the Lord of what? All our lives. He is, he is a part of, of every aspect of who we are. He doesn't just want you on Sundays and Wednesdays. He doesn't just want you, you know, in certain environments and certain situations. He wants every part of you, every aspect of you, every every reality of your life needs to be submitted to Him, driven by Him. And that majesty and that power will, will manifest itself in, in every part of our life as we acknowledge that. And, and not only that, it, it's not just the earth. It's what? It's even bigger than that. It says what? He says, you have set your glory above the heaven, even beyond what I can see, even beyond what I can control, even beyond what I understand. You're there. Your majesty and your power are not limited to, to even my imagination or my understanding or my perspective. You're bigger than even that. You're bigger than I thought you were. So often we, we come to God and, and we, uh, uh, we, we pray our prayers that that we prayed a, a thousand times before, not really even sometimes thinking about what we're saying or what we're disclosing or what we're asking for. And, and we, we fail to see that, that He's bigger than that. He's bigger than, than anything we can ask of. He, he's bigger than anything we could expect. He's somebody who, who challenges us, who calls us beyond ourselves. And who's there to provide the ability to get beyond ourselves because of how big He is. Our God is not limited by our frailties, by our weakness. Notice that the writer says here, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. I think, I believe that the, the babes and infants here is, is not necessarily referring to to babies and infants themselves, it's a metaphor for us. That we in our limitedness, we in our frailty, God has used to what? To express His strength. Why? Because of His foes. In other words, He's going to speak through us. He's going to use us. He's going to minister to us in our limitedness. And in so doing, manifest His strength. Paul talked about how uh, Christ's strength is perfected in our weakness. 
and how we need to acknowledge our limitedness, and in so doing, we submit ourselves to the greatness of who God is. Some of the most meaningful times in my life, some of the most spiritually uh, renewing moments of my life have been those moments when I realized how limited I was. How what I was facing, what I was dealing with, what I was confronting was something I really couldn't handle on my own. Because it's in those times that God really began to manifest Himself, to reveal His strength and His power and His majesty. He began to show me, it doesn't matter what I'm limited by. He's bigger than it. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? If God be on our side, who can stand in our way? God is majestic. He is powerful. His strength is manifested and expressed in our weakness. And we can see so much of who He is in creation. The passage goes on to, to talk about, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. It's a reflection, what, of, of just how, how vast and, and how big and, and how wonderful He is. When you consider what we can see, when you look up at the sky at night, the, the thousands of stars that are visible, you, you, you get a, 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 a telescope, so even more stars are visible. You, you get the big telescopes and billions of stars are visible. And you stop to consider how big and how vast the universe is. What does that say about how vast and big our God is? He truly is awesome. I, I've been able to, uh, I've been blessed to be able to, to do some travel and, and to see some of the, the majestic natural wonders. Victoria Falls and Grand Canyon and, and other things like that. This, these things that are just so massive and you look at them and you think, wow, our God is magnificent. But not just magnificent in, si in terms of size and strength, magnificent in terms of of creativity and beauty. You look at the variety of flowers we have available just, just to us here in East Texas. You know, I, I love driving by, you know, certain homes that, that really take after, take care of their homes and have the flowers and all that, you know, hydrangeas and, and azaleas and all the various flowers, roses that we have uh, in the area. And that variety and that beauty says something significant about our God. But notice how the biblical writer carefully distances God from his creation here. While telling us that we can see his name in, in creation, we can see that is his character, the, 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 the creativity, the power, the majesty that we have, it also distances God from creation by using the terms of name and using the, the fact that it's his fingertips. It, it's, it's kind of something that, that's out there that he's created. That's a very important idea because so often in, in their world, and, and it's even carried over into our world, we, we associate this creation with God to the degree that sometimes this creation can almost become our God. That, that we're, 
we're acknowledging and, and we're, we're so focused upon the things of this world, we lose sight of the bigger picture. And the writer here wants us to understand that our God is not limited by our world. He's not constrained by the, the laws of, of science or, or by any other reality. Our God is bigger than that. Our God is capable of the miraculous. He is capable of, of setting aside the very laws that govern the universe to act His will and His desire for humanity. That's our God. And to see who He is is to, is to begin to understand who we are. And the writer uses each of those images, each of those ideas about who God is to, to say something about us. He says that we are limited, that we're frail, that we're insufficient on our own. The, the image of us as babies and infants that's used here is, is again, it's a very powerful image. Is there anything more helpless than a baby? You look at those sweet faces and and... and and, you know, it's so moving and, and so significant, but it's also terrifying in some ways when you hold that baby and you realize, wow, i got to take care of this. <laughs> i got to make sure he or she's fed, got to change their diapers, got to make sure they're provided for. Man, everything they need, everything they can get, I'm the one who's got to provide it. And when we think about our relationship with God, that, that's the reality as well. Everything we need, everything that we can hopeful, uh, we're hopefully able to acquire, that we're able to, to, to do and, and, and carry out, is what? It's dependent upon God's provision. Unless God build the house, those who build it labor in vain, Scripture tells us. Unless God build this house, this church, we labor in vain. Unless God builds our, our, own, our own house, our personal private house, we labor in vain. Unless God builds the, the house of our businesses and, and our other realities and situations, we labor in vain. God must be the sinner. We are limited. Even from the beginning, before the fall, we were limited. When, when we're described there in Genesis chapter 2 in terms of how we're made, we're made from what? We're made from the dust. We're made from the clay. We're vessels of clay. We are, we are breakable. We are fragile. And it's important for us to acknowledge, as we acknowledge God's greatness, we acknowledge our limitedness that we see our utter dependence upon Him. And that dependence grew even more when we, when we stepped into, into uh, to sin. And we found ourselves separated from the God who made us. We found ourselves walking in a way and in a life that was contrary to His desires and His plan for us. And we found ourselves without hope. We what? To find that salvation and that hope and that direction, we need Him. We need the salvation that He offers. We need the deliverance that He alone can provide. But there's another truth about us that, that goes right alongside that truth of our limitedness, and that is that we are created in God's image. 
And that's, an, that's a truth that's just as important as the first. It's, it's a reflection of our special status. The writer here says that, that he has crowned humanity. God has crowned humanity with glory and honor. That's a reflection of the fact that we were created in God's image. We were created to look like him, to be like him, to relate to him. Later on in, in, in Exodus, chapter 20, when you're looking at what we call the Ten Commandments, you have the commandment that says, you shall not make for yourself any graven images. In other words, don't make an image. And not just, not just an image of, of false gods. God's instruction there, don't make an image of me. Okay, Don't build anything that's supposed to represent me. Don't shape anything... That, that you think is a picture of me. That's what God says there. Now, why would God say that? Because there's no image we could create that could adequately portray Him. There's nothing we could shape or we could form or we could, we could create in our imaginations that would be big enough, that would be grand enough, that would be clear enough to adequately display who He is. We're just incapable of that. So God says, don't misrepresent. Don't misrepresent me by creating something of your own mind and of your own thinking of that's supposed to represent me. Let me be me, is what he's saying there. But when you read that and you think of that prohibition and that limitation that God put on us, and then you go back to Genesis 1, where he says, let's make man in our image. And he utters that. And you think of the two in light of each other. It it really raises our standing and our status in significant ways. It says what? God said, don't make any, anything that's an image of me because you can't do anything that's even close to who I am. And yet, when he created, he made something in his image according to his likeness to us. He intended us to be a picture in some limited way. Still, we're not God. We'll never be God. But in some limited way, we were created to show each other Him. To reveal to each other and to the rest of creation who God is. That's why the incarnation itself, which we're going to look at here in just a second, why that's even possible. How could God become man? Because He had already made man in His image. There was already a connection there. And so that's a challenge, that's a call to us, that's an ethical responsibility to, to live up to the, the standing, to the, to, to the standard, to the calling of representing God appropriately to the world around us. But the only way we do that is if we first, what, acknowledge our limitedness and rely on Him to empower us. That's the only way we can really, quote, live up to the standard of, of being in the image of God is by letting Him live through us, letting Him empower and direct and guide our hearts and minds. That is what we are called to, to, to see and what we're called to understand, to, to keep those two realities in balance. And as an outgrowth of that, we are what? The passage here says, you're, we've been given dominion over the works of your hands. We've been given dominion over the rest of creation, power and authority over the rest of creation. We have a responsibility to this world. 
to take care of it. We have a responsibility to be good stewards of God's planet, of God's earth. Christians ought to be at the forefront of environmentalism in terms of our work and our ethic and our, and our mindset of how to take care of the earth. Let me put it this way. This is an illustration I use in my classes when, when we talk about you know, the Genesis 1 passage where God says, I'm giving you dominion over things. Imagine, usually when I'm talking to the, to the students, I say, imagine your parents are going on a trip. Parents, imagine you're going on a trip. Okay? And as you step out the door, you turn to your, your older child, assuming teenagers at least here, and you say what? House is yours. You're in charge. You walk out. Now, when you say that sentence, you do not have in mind, I would think, that that child can do whatever they want to with that house. That they can what? They can have any kind of parties they want. They can sell the house if they wanted. They can destroy the house if they wanted. You don't mean in that sentence, the house is yours, that the house is literally theirs. You're saying what? This is my house. I'm putting you in charge. Take care of it. That's what that sentence means. Okay? You have authority over this house to do what is necessary to take care of this house. So when God made man, and he says, I'm giving you dominion over all of creation, he's not saying, do with it whatever you want. Destroy it if you want. You know, uh, treat it however you want. He's saying what? This is my house. I'm letting you take care of it. Do a good job. So there's a call, there's a challenge here in terms of our interaction with the rest of creation that, that is, again, a part of who we are. Who are we? We're limited creatures empowered by an almighty God to care for His creation and to connect with the world around us in a way that reveals His glory and His majesty. That's who we are. That's our identity. We are loved by the God who made us. We are cherished by the God who created us. He didn't make us and then just say, you're on your own. He made us and then he continues to walk beside us, even as we rebelled against us. What does Paul say? While we were yet sinners, while we were in rebellion, Christ died for us. He has continued to walk beside us. And, and it's in that reality that we see how this psalm plays out Christologically. That this psalm has a very close connection to Christ and His ministry. Two phrases in this psalm are used repeatedly in the New Testament to reflect who Jesus is. The passage that says, You've made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings or a little lower than the angels in some translations. That's used repeatedly about Jesus to what? To talk about the incarnation. That for a little while, He came and He dwelled among us. He breathed the air that we breathe. He walked the roads that we walk. He uh, was tempted, just as we were tempted in every way, yet what? Without sin. To, to hear that and to see that is to see that, that when God made us, 
he had a plan, he had a purpose, and that God continues to, to, to reach out to us. He continues to desire to walk alongside us, so much so that he left his glory in heaven to dwell in our midst. That's the God that we serve. That's the reflection of how important he views us to be. The second Christological passage is you give him dominion over all things, over the work of your hands. Paul uses this, and, and other New Testament writers talk about, use this to talk about Jesus' position as Lord. That Jesus is the one who is in authority. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the one who is in a position to rule all things. To see those two truths is, is to simply to highlight even more the truths of this passage in terms of who God is and who we are. It's to see that God does, in fact, love us, though we don't deserve it. It's, it's to see that God is passionate about us, so passionate that he would pursue us even to death on a cross. It's to see that God is powerful enough to, to interact and to engage with us, that he is risen from the grave, the, the great enemy, the one that has conquered all humanity, he conquered in rising again. And because of that power, because of that victory, we have life. We have hope. We have a future. And all of that comes together to, to say this truth. The search for who we are only finds its fullest expression when we find ourselves in Him. We were made for Him. We find our identity in Him. We find our worth, not in our abilities or our powers, but in Him. He loves us. The one who knows us better than any other individual, any other person, any other creature. The one who knows the very depths of our hearts, the, the thoughts that we possess, the, the, the excuses that we make, the failures that we carry out. He loves us completely. We are His. And because of that truth, because of that reality, what more do we need to know? What more do we need to discover than that we were made for Him? And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Him, you've, you've never submitted to Him, you've never given your life to Him, then you don't know who you are. You may think you know who you are. You may think you know where you're headed. But if you have not found yourself in God, you don't know anything. God is the answer to every need we have, to every knowledge we seek, to every truth we pursue, God is the answer. And we come to God, we come to relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we surrender who we are, when we die to ourselves, and we give ourselves to God, and we say, what? I'm frail. I'm broken. I'm not who I need to be. But I was made for a relationship with you. And so I give myself over to that relationship with you. And I surrender to your will. And I will follow you all the days of my life. And at that moment, we're transformed. At that moment, we're renewed. At that moment, we become a new creation. 
in Christ. And we find the hope that we were designed to have. We find the joy that we were built to enjoy. We find the future that we all are so desperately seeking in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, without whom we would have no hope, without whom we would have no future, without whom we would have no understanding. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, who's not found their true identity, who's not found their true worth, because they're still holding on to themselves and their old ways of doing things, Lord, I pray that you would draw them, that you would convict them, and that they would seek you out. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you would help us as we come sometimes to those moments of wondering who we are and, and what we were made for, that you would remind us clearly and, and unequivocally that you are indeed the one who made us, who has called us, and that we know who we are because we know you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Christ's name I pray.